This next session is one with Root stating, I, back to, honestly, a year ago, I got an email from Newbar. He and Sandy had just attended the 2000 conference, and uh, they were already thinking of an idea for this year. Um, so it's, it literally started, I think, October 26th. I checked the date on the email last year. Um, they had begun to talk about how to use images as metaphors in radio, and this was a discussion I think that came out of their attending last year. Now we know that the use of metaphor is a powerful way to communicate something that cuts across mediums. It's used in photography, it's used in film, it's used in print, um, which is why when Newbar, who works primarily in photography, thought it would be a good thing to bring this up at the conference, we totally agreed with him right away, as long as he would moderate the discussion. So, got what we wanted. As a documentary photographer, writer, and sometimes filmmaker, Nubar has spent the past 30 years traveling the world and collecting images and stories, bringing them to viewers, to readers, to watchers, and now to listeners. He understandably has a thing or two to say about the use of images metaphor. Newbar, two more things about Newbar. He took the beautiful picture that's on the Atlantic Public Media posters outside. You're all uh, welcome and encouraged to take one. And also, he's a winner this year. So um, I'd like to congratulate him. And we'll be finding out more about that at tomorrow night's uh, ceremony. So a little plug for that. Um, basically, we hope Newbar will be contributing to radio, adding it to the list of mediums that he's... Uh, involved in for years to come. And now I'm going to let him take over at the panel and thank Sherry, Sharon, and Sandy. We only could have panel members whose names started with S for this one. So think about that uh, metaphor. And on with the show. Thank you, Julie. Hey, Jay, can I borrow your flashlight, man? <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, I'm going to start by just talking about my experience as a still photographer and, and the use of metaphor, and then we're going to do a segue into radio, and I'll do a more formal announcement, uh, introduction um, of the panelists. But for now, I'd just like to say that this is Sherry Delise, Sharon Ball, Sandy Tolan, and um, we'll be talking for the next hour and a half about images metaphor used in radio. Um, as a photographer, I've always been really more committed to the process than product and sort of enchanted by the dialogue that takes place between the deliberate and the accidental, um, in a way between the conscious and the unconscious, and developing imagery. I mean, I love the real world, but find that the imagery in dreams and poetry are more often enduring than the straight documentary images that we see today. Um, and it wasn't until I produced my first radio piece this last year that I began to understand the power of radio, imagery in radio. Um, why I would sit in my car and finish listening to a piece, um, and what, what was it that would hold me there. And yes, it would have to be a good story well told, but there was something else going on in the pieces, something I recognized in my own medium um, that was echoed in radio. Um, and that is the precise use of metaphor. I'm going to use my computer here for a second. So in order to work with metaphor and still images, a photographer has to develop his or her own visual vocabulary um, because it's the photographer's experience of the subject um, that in, in the end gets translated. Um, this is also true in radio. Um, but does finding one's own voice in radio mean uh, more than creating a new style for radio? 
Um, does this function differently for producers working in different genres? Do, do metaphors inherently deepen a story? These are all questions that I sort of asked myself as I was doing my own piece. Um, and really, radio does something that still photographs don't do as well, I think, which is to engage both the listener's experience and their imagination. Um, still photographs can tend to be create a more two-dimensional view of something. Um, so as a way of beginning this discussion, perhaps I'll talk about myself as a photographer. Um, whether, a photo- whether, whether a photograph represents the memory of someone or something or as a witness to something, in both cases the image is basically a document and is about the subject. But photographs can also be about the photographer and photography, and in fact, all great photographs juggle these three things. When you add the photographer into the equation between the subject and the medium, what we're really talking about is his or her experience of that subject. And it is here where metaphor is necessarily engaged and I believe represents the central premise of the panel and that we're going to be talking about today. Um, So I'm going to show a few slides here and talk about... So can we uncover... And we can go down with the lights, thank you. <clears throat> this is a picture I did for the New York Times. It was a cover story for the New York Times Magazine, and the title of it was Why is America Failing Its Children? And it's a photograph of a, a, a baby born uh, addicted to crack um, because uh, the, the baby's mother was addicted to crack. And, you know, I needed a way to show that this child was born imprisoned. So the, it's a very simple use of metaphor here. We're, I'm using the crib bars as like an, uh, sort of uh, imprisoned. Again, it's my experience of this subject that gets translated. It's not simply just a documentary image. Although all of the images that I take, um, I never ask people to do anything for my camera. Um, it's more about how I see that, that subject. I mean, another simple thing is a bird represents freedom. It represents all kinds of things. Um, is the bird being caught? Is it being released? Um, and is it the wing of the bird that is actually making the, the water uh, move? Um, in the picture, that's true. In, in, in reality, it's not. But um, again, it's the way that I use the camera that helps me say those things. You know, I think most people's experience of photographs is like I said, about memory and witness, um, and, and therefore about the subject. But, you know, uh, there are other uses of it like this. Or Here we have a picture of, some of you know that this is Studs Terkel. It's not necessary to know that, um, uh, to talk about this picture. This was taken at Third Coast, I think, two years ago. I'm not sure. Um, and... As a photographer, I've done lots of work covering presidential campaigns. And, you know, somebody standing at the podium is like visual death. You know, it's like you don't want to take another picture of somebody at a podium. But here I was at Third Coast, and I have a camera with me all the time. And for some reason, I made my way through the crowd up to studs talking, and I made six frames, and I sat down, and that was it. And this, I don't know why I did that. 
And so here is the reason why I did that. We have this picture of the sage-like man expressing himself in front of what? It looks, is it a big mirror? Is it a stage? We don't know. Is that the moon overhead? And it becomes a sort of poetic, you know, sort of uh, dynamic image of this man who to me is a great man and who has contributed a huge amount. Um, but, you know, he was standing at a podium. So there's something about the event. Here, this is in Auschwitz. Um, and I was there for two weeks with the filmmaker Errol Morris and... It's, it's a two weeks, actually, I wish I hadn't spent. I mean, you can see too much sometimes. Um, and I was sure that my medium had failed me terribly. Um, there was no way a picture could describe how I felt being there, working there from 7.30 in the morning till 8 o'clock at night every day for two weeks. Um, but this picture started to talk about it a little bit. Are the shadows of the people, what do they represent? Do they represent the past? Is it, a, is it simply a film still? What is it? More important, when I got back and looked at the film, I thought oh, I, what I really needed was a witness. And what I found is that the trees were my witness, that the trees were actually there. And that in a way, that tree that is sort of deformed in my image here, um, maybe because of what happened. I mean, it's probably not true. But for me, in my experience, it's the closest I could come. Um, I, I spent 15 years going back and forth to Peru, and I did a book on Peru. Um, and I wondered, if you look at this picture, it's a picture of a woman maybe a grandmother, granddaughter, mother, daughter, and they look lost. Um, Now, they're not lost. But in a way, they look centuries lost. And I needed a picture that would describe what was happening to the Quechua Indians and their culture, their identity, which has been on hold, really, since the Spanish invaded that country. And I was sitting in just an outdoor cafe, having a coffee, and I saw these two walking, and I just jetted across the street, I made three frames, and I sat down. Now, there's no way for me to know when I'm shooting what this picture describes, but I knew I needed a picture like this. But it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with my experience of the the people that I'm photographing. Again, metaphor. A very simple image. I mean, this really more. This picture is more about me than about Peru. Um, I know I grew up in an Armenian family where I was taught to, you know, to respect my elders. And so here we have a man, the, the face of a of a young, new Peruvian man, sort of bowing to an old Peruvian man walking up a hill in bare feet. Now, in truth, the guy in the foreground is just buying a cigarette from somebody. Um, and so, you know, like I said, it, it, what's going on in front of the camera, the picture doesn't need to be just about what's going on in front of the camera. It can be about my experience of what uh, the subject is. So it's a truth, I think, um, but not about them. Um, I spent a lot of time in this one village, and the, the, the Quechua Indians uh, get married in this church, and they put on Western clothes. And um, I looked at this picture, and I thought, well, it just felt more like a funeral than a wedding. There, there was something very sad about um, 
them going to this church and then changing clothes afterwards into their uh, normal attire and partying for three days. And finally, the people in Peru are poor, and I needed to say that. And, you know, this burro screaming in an empty field with somebody walking through it says that. Now, the reason the burro screaming is because I'm there. You know, he's sort of screaming at me. So the question now is, and Ernst, we're there, the question is, what would this sound like? What, is, what would this sound like in radio? And what we've done is we've created a, a sound wall of, of, of sounds that are from pieces that uh, our panelists here have pulled, some of which they'll talk about later and some of which we won't. But can we hear that, please? So before we start, I just want to introduce everybody more formally. Sherry Delise, to my left here, <clears throat> her radio features have been commissioned, broadcast internationally, and awarded prizes, including the Silver Award at the Third Coast International Audio Festival in 2002. She was a producer for The Listening Room, the acoustic art program of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation from 1996 until 2003, and is currently a producer for The Next Big Thing in, on WNYC. She teaches in media studies and sound design, and her collaborative sound installations and sound sculptures have been represented in major exhibitions, including most recently the Biennial of of Sydney, Australia, 2004. Sharon Ball is an award-winning public radio editor and consultant based in upstate New York. She spent 15 years with NPR News in Washington, D.C., and was the network's senior cultural editor until 2002. 
Um, her radio experience includes everything from spinning records on, I love this, on U.S. military stations in the Far East to establishing the first religion, race, relations, and media beats at NPR News. As an editor, she has worked with top producers such as Sandy Tolan and Deborah George with writers such as National Book Award winner Edward Ball, no relation, and MacArthur fellow Octavia Butler with reporters such as On the Media's Gladstone, NPR's John Burnett, and Jeb Sharp of PRI's The World. Sharon has been a newscaster, a reporter, a guest host on Weekend NPR, news magazines, a news manager, and she served as guest faculty at the Pointer Institute of Media Studies and as a former member of the Pointer National Institute Advisory Board. Um, she is now on the board of the local opera company in her new community, where she also sings in public occasionally and writes songs when there's time. Now, Sandy Tolan would like to be introduced as the president of the dance team here at Third Coast. 9.30, 9.30 tonight. What's that? 9.30 tonight. 9.30 tonight. The dance yeah. team will convene. You, you will, if you see, we actually all come here to see Sandy dance. Um, but he has been producing ra- public radio features and documentaries since 1981, beginning in Navajo and Hopi country, then down along the U.S.-Mexican border, where he and I met on a, t- on a story for the New York Times. Um, in Central and South America, the Caribbean, the Balkans, the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East, and the U.S. His focus has been land, water, ethnic tensions, and the global economy. His work has won numerous awards, including a DuPont Columbia Silver Baton, three Robert F. Kennedy International Journalism Awards, three honors from the Overseas Press Club, and a United Nations Gold Medal Award. He is the author of Me and Hank, an exploration of race and sports in America that began with a radio collaboration with one Miss Sharon Ball. He is currently at work on his second book, The Lemon Tree, the seat of which also lies in public radio documentary, and he teaches international reporting and radio feature production at the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. We're going to start with Sharon and talk about Images Metaphor. Hi. Okay, um, Images Metaphor. All right, it's about the work. And for me, the work has always been about story. Metaphor is one of the powerful tools that we use to tell stories. And however you use sound, whatever your ideology is about journalism versus art, uh, story is what we do. And story is certainly what I've committed to. Um, Metaphor is one of those rare tools, poetic and practical. It allows us to uh, get uh, to the essence of the thing in a way that um, very often, you know, that might be inaccessible in some other way, access to essence. Um, I think of metaphor, um, it needs to be integral to the story. I'm not one of the people who thinks that it needs to stand off by itself. Um, a beautiful metaphor is a, it's a thing of beauty, okay? A beautiful metaphor is a thing of beauty, but... In the context of doing the work and telling a story, it needs to serve the story, in my view. Um, and by serving, by serving the story, I don't mean uh, that it takes a back seat, that it's in this position. I mean that a story has the need to be heard. It has the need to be heard across diverse platforms of perception. And in any way that metaphor can help facilitate the story's need to be heard, 
that is when I think metaphor works best. Now, um, it helps us create a deeper level of narrative accuracy, I think, uh, access the narrative nuance. Now, all those words mean nothing if I don't have any sound to play, and I've got some sound to play. Um, I've chosen an excerpt, and hopefully there are a lot of layers of metaphor in this piece. Um, and you'll decide which ones, uh, which ones are really apparent, which ones are more subtle. You'll decide for yourself. It's from a recent project that I did with NPR's Verdame Grosvenor, and it's about um, Alice Walker's relationship with Zora Neale Hurston, two black women writers. Most people know these names, at least probably the people in this room know these names. But just like anything else, that's, this is one of those multiple levels of perception. A lot of people out there may know Alice Walker, but they may not know Zora Neale Hurston. So the idea was to provide some information while at the same time capturing an essence, an almost spiritual essence that um, was a dynamic feature of the relationship between these two women who never met. If we could play the tape, please. Janie buried tea cake in Palm Beach. She knew he loved the glades, but it was... Alice Walker curls up on her living room couch and reads from Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Then the band played, and tea cake rode like a pharaoh to his tomb. No expensive veils and robes for Janie this time. She went on in her overalls. She was too busy feeling grief to dress like grief. Alice Walker believes that as a world, as a planet, we are in a state of grief. And the most appropriate thing to do is to just grieve for what is being lost. It is the grandmother spirit, the strong grandmother, the centered grandmother, the no-nonsense grandmother. That's what's missing in this culture. That's who should be speaking to us now, in this hour. For Alice Walker, Zora Neale Hurston embodied the disciplined, loving authority of the grandmother spirit of the earth. By holding firmly to the authentic inner life of the black rural South, Walker says Hurston provided cultural nourishment and spiritual food. So we are in her debt in a major way because she was an anthropologist. She, she took that on, the discipline of learning how to do it so that it could be made into forms that would last even in what were then basically white people's libraries. It was in library collections that Hurston's work, novels, essays, and plays, gathered dust for 30 years after the Harlem Renaissance. If I could have Langston Hughes sitting where you're sitting right this minute, I would really want to know why he didn't tell me about her. Alice Walker knew poet Langston Hughes while she was still a student at Sarah Lawrence College in the mid-60s. Hughes knew Zora Neale Hurston in the 1930s. Both writers got financial support from the same rich, controlling white patron. Hughes and Hurston had a bitter falling out and never reconciled. I feel that part of my reason for being in this lifetime is to heal their friendship in myself. And I do that in myself by understanding them. 
I feel like I understand what it was like for them to be so hard up and so struggling and so needy of support to do work that really sustains us all to this day. Langston Hughes included an early Alice Walker story in his 1967 anthology, The Best Short Stories by Black Writers. It took years for Walker to realize that there was a story by Zora Neale Hurston just pages away called The Gilded Six Bits. I think what that means is that I read all the men, and even if I had read a little of her Gilded Six Bits, it had probably seemed so familiar and so country and so much what I was used to (laughs) in Georgia that I just didn't pay much attention to it. But several years later in Mississippi, a neighbor lent Alice Walker a copy of Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. She began studying Hurston's life and works. In 1973, Walker found herself in Fort Pierce, Florida, in the Garden of Heavenly Rest. She walked among the high weeds, fearing snakes, as she looked for Zora Neale Hurston's unmarked grave. I actually started to call to her, to Zora, and I just kind of stepped into this hole, which was the only thing that looked like a grave in the area. A struggling young writer then, Walker bought a modest headstone for Hurston's grave and had it inscribed, A Genius of the South. She later edited a Zora Neale Hurston reader that borrows a Hurston quote for its title, I love myself when I'm laughing and then again when I'm looking mean and impressive. I felt, and I still feel, I will always feel very daughterly and very niecely in relation to Zora, and I feel a responsibility to her. When Hurston died in 1960, all of her stories about hoodoo doctors, fruit pickers, and workers in sawmill and turpentine camps were out of print. Famed novelist Richard Wright once accused her of creating minstrel characters designed to make white folks laugh. But Alice Walker says Zora Neale Hurston was wildly in love with people of color and wanted to make sure they had a foundation in their own reality. Without a foundation in our own reality, you can see this happening all the time. People don't know what to do. They don't know what to buy. They don't know what kind of house to live in. They don't know, they don't know who they are. For God's sake and goddess's sake, appreciate who you are. There is nobody finer on this planet for you to emulate than yourself. Uh, my name is Zora Neale Hurston. This song is called Shove It Over. And it's a line and rhythm, pretty generally distributed all over Florida. When I get in the yelling noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, hey, hey you'll catch a line and I'll shack a like a like a like a like a like a catch a move it. Hey, hey, you'll catch a tie. I always tear up when Ver- when uh, Zora comes in because I didn't know that Verda had that tape. She didn't tell me as we were working on the piece. She saved it as a wonderful surprise late in the, late in the production process. She had dug it up somewhere in her research. Southern women, Southern black women, with power and grace. 
the women that I never met growing up, the women that I never saw in the educational system, the women who, when they were presented, became a metaphor for impoverishment, uh, ignorance, uh, lewdness. That's how black women were presented to me as I was growing up. And not just by uh, white people or white culture, but by other black people who didn't know where they came from and didn't know what had been accomplished. In my work as an editor, um, I have a personal commitment to facilitating the telling of stories that connects the inner and outer life of a story. The inner and outer life of a story. And that was very much part of the energy that was, that went into this project. Six minutes. Six minutes is all we had to work with. But rather than lament, oh, we've only got six minutes. My idea is that you use what you get. Metaphor helps you go deeper. Obviously, Zora is a metaphor for uh, loss and found. The grandmother spirit, a metaphor for the depth that is available in the work that we do. The depth that is available. And my experience of missing out on this woman, on this work, until I was well past the age of 30, this was kind of a, uh, a bow to, uh, of not regret that I didn't know, but gratitude that I finally did come to know. Sharon, in addition to all, you know, your commitment to word and the, the, how steep this piece is in metaphor, one of the things that really struck me is their voices, the actual sound, and the way that you go from one reading voice to a more improvised voice of Alice Walker. Can you talk about the structure of that? Sure. Uh, well, we decided to use Alice reading. We asked her to read several different... We asked her to pick a piece, uh, a, a, a favorite section of Zora's work that she wanted to read. We didn't know what we were going to use. We didn't know if we were going to use it, but we made sure that when we were in her house that we were going to get as much production out of Alice Walker as we could because we figured this chance would not come again. <laughs> um, so she read this. And, it, um, and then in the course of the interview, uh, I have to tell you um, that in the course of the interview between Verda and Alice Walker, in the room, there seemed to be some sort of other presence. I mean, there really did seem to be another presence. And I don't know. I don't want to get off on some sort of spiritual tick, scare anybody. But there was. There did seem to be another presence. And so what, what we came to decide was in the piece, that presence needed to be acknowledged. Mm. And, and in six minutes, the only way to do that was to use as much of the words of Zora. And we needed to uh, ev- evoke Zora. She wasn't just some dead writer, okay? She, she needed, she was a key to the story, and obviously we couldn't interview her. So the best way to do that was the work 
that she had done and to start there. It also allowed us to, um, and of course, Alice Walker is just such a wonderful voice and, and presence mm-hmm. herself. So we tried to, we wanted to take you someplace very quickly, very quickly. And the, the quickest way to do that was to use Zora's words, Alice reading Zora's words, and then Alice talking about what those words mean, what, the, what, that, what that story and what um, Zora meant. Uh, to her and, uh, and sort of to the work of the world. I'm just going to sort of follow up on that. I mean, one of the things that really struck me, Sharon, in, in listening to Alice Walker read, and I, I suppose you would, couldn't possibly have necessarily expected this until you listened to it, but there's something in the quality of her voice itself. And I wrote down the, you know, what... what uh, Verdame was quoting uh, Alice saying, the most appropriate thing to do is grieve for what is being lost. And there's some, excuse me, there's something in the, in the tim, in the very timber of her voice that's almost a metaphor. And, and I'm inferring that anyway, yeah, sure, but yeah. that, you know, that, that's a metaphor for that. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I mean, it's, it, it is that, I guess that sort of paradox. Um, you're celebrating something, and at the same time, you're mourning the fact that um, she died in obscurity. You die, you're, you're celebrating her work. And simultaneously acknowledging that there's a huge grief here, mm. that, uh, that she was not known, that they did not know. And for 30 years she lived in obscurity, and she died impoverished and was buried in an unmarked grave. All this, all this work and talent, which, by the way, of course, is all now back in print, and they do conferences about Zora Neale Hurston. And it was the essay that uh, Alice Walker wrote in 1975 and published in Ms. Magazine that helped renew interest. Um, in in in, uh, in Zora Neale Hurston, so it's a celebration, um, but not a bitter one, um, uh, not an angry one, but one that just acknowledges that that to mourn a loss is appropriate, um, even as you're celebrating its uh, even as you're celebrating its presence. I just want to ask one more question about when we when I was editing the sound wall that we used, um, I asked each of the panelists to send me examples of um, sounds or and, and, and I edited out some of uh, words <laughs> um, which Sharon was sort of miffed at and I but I loved your I loved your reasons why can we talk about that I mean I, I just sort of felt like in the sound wall that we were using um, having words come in broke the experience that I was trying to describe to people but you took exception to for really good reason. Well, it was just that um, words are the ultimate metaphor, aren't they? I mean, if we're talking about metaphor as um, representing something else, a representation, a representation of something else, uh, a symbol for something deeper, other, essential, uh, then words are the ultimate symbolism. I mean, let's face it, we use these things, but we've all agreed on what they mean. We've, you know, it's, it's, it's an agreement. But in reality, these words that we stick out there that represent something um, uh, could be anything. I say my name over and over and over and over again. I mean, if you repeat your name over and over, it begins to mean something else. So, um, so when we're talking about meaning, uh, I felt I felt that taking word taking words out because they were words um, was a denial of the sort of metaphorical reality. Um, of every word 
And uh, I didn't take it personally, but <laughs> but just like every, you know, no one likes to be edited, especially editors. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sharon, very Thank much. You. And we swing the pendulum now toward art, I think. Can we say that? Sherry? Say that. I'll say that. All right. Um, I think it's interesting what you just said about words because we had also said at another time that metaphor is what you use when words fail. So I think they're both right and it just sort of serves to show how slippery this this topic is and how hard it is actually a thing to talk about. But I thought um, that rather than me try to define metaphor, which I think is being amply done, or at least rather than doing that straight away, I'd like to um, look at another subject, which is subjectivity. Am I having, I'm humming when I speak, feeding back. You hear Do you want me to move this mic back? Oh, closer. <laughs> See, I'm a photographer. <laughs> The reason I thought I'd do that, it comes out of a discussion. We, we got together as a panel very briefly last night, and it, I started noticing, I'm sure we all did, that this old chestnut of the subjectivity-objectivity divide seemed to be lurking behind our topic in, in quite a substantial way. So I thought I'd, I'd start out by talking about that. And with your indulgence, I'm going to read a little something I wrote after we talked. I'd like to ask you, is metaphor only a metaphor if the listener perceives it as such? And does it matter if the author intended it? In asking this, I'm not trying to drive the discussion down the winding roads of that classic conundrum, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it really happen? That could be a nice metaphor to get lost in, but I'm hoping more modestly to just do some aforesting. We're here at a maker's conference, so I guess we could be forgiven for sounding like our pieces start and end in our studios. But I'd like to plant the idea of a stand of listeners and their subjectivities at the center of our discussion. We're part of an ecosystem, after all, and we all know how fragile those are. And fragile, too, is metaphor because it's very subjective. So how do we take account of these listeners? The only way I know is to ignore them. That's another conundrum, I suppose, and others I'm sure will disagree. But in my experience, the way to arrive at something which draws a listener to truly engage in the work, to make connections with their own lives, is to leave that listener behind and to venture out into the tangled thicket of my materials and to listen to the voices on the breeze. Some will say that that's not seeing the forest for the trees, but seeing isn't my metaphor here. Unlike vision, hearing allows us to multitrack. We can take in a number of sounds from different perspectives all at once. And anyway, I don't believe that one can see the forest unless looking from a great height, and that seems a little arrogant. Coming in on the plane, a story sprung to mind. A friend had told me about a group of New Guinea Highlanders with whom he'd worked for years. They lived in a very thick rainforest, and it was dense with bird life overhead. And in fact, the birds play a spiritual role, serving, you might say metaphorically, as ancestors. My friend told me about how he could never manage to point his directional mic toward the exact position of a bird calling from the trees, especially with so much reverberant energy about, without some adjusting. But these residents of the forest could, with pinpoint accuracy, signal where a bird was sitting, a result of the adept listening which comes from life spent in an environment where vision only gets you so far. And as distinct from my friend's ear witness recordings of the birds, the Highlanders had a tendency to respond to the call through a form of po poetic mimicry, 
born of an intense regard for these representatives of the spirit world. I have faith that if we go in deep enough, if our belief in the connection between spirit and the everyday overrides our fear of being lost, then we too will start to communicate directly with our materials. And now back to that listener. I've found that when we act so, so solipsistically, some would say, we become aware of and further develop enough layers of meaning that a range of listeners are able to draw from our work and enter their own medical, metaphorical forest, that they start to make their own meanings based on the meanings we found when we dived in. The New Guinea story, which I hadn't thought of for many years, came to me when thinking about this panel. And so the story about these people who are exercising their own subjectivity with absolutely no regard for me became a metaphor relevant to me and the work on this, my, the work on this panel today. And I think that's the way it works. If you develop metaphors which are strong and true, people will always find a way to relate them to their experience. Our consciousness seeks relationships, particularly those parts of our consciousness which are not about the rational and the objective. So I hope all that talk about subjectivity hasn't seemed too tangential, but I think for me that's the place where metaphor lives. And in talking to the others, it seemed to be you know, a real sub substrata in our work here. So I'll now try to address the topic a little bit more directly by just playing some pieces, um, or some very small extracts from pieces, actually. And I should say, I found it hard. I think maybe Sharon had a fabulous strategy in playing a, a whole piece, because I've tried to extract little bits from pieces, and I realized that metaphors in my work, and I'm sure it's true of everybody, they're, they're actually woven throughout the work, so it's very hard to take a, a little grab, and you'll have to, I'll have to talk around it a lot, basically. So these are, in fact, tokens of metaphors rather than the metaphor themselves. Um, the first uh, track, track two, is it, is uh, myself and a parrot in a room alone, talking and just play that we can hello did I mention this volume is out of print hello <laughs> hello what are you doing I'm looking through want a cup of coffee that's sweet but no thanks um, that's from a piece called Ages Ago, and it was sort of, the piece is sort of a meditation on sound and memory. And in it I reflect on sound objects that I collected during a year spent in a village in Belgium. But to talk about memory and the power of sound to evoke. And I see now, uh, now that I've had to think for this panel, that at the center of it I put a metaphor, which is, which is the parrot. And the reason I think the parrot is a metaphor is because the parrot itself is a sort of playback machine. So I was talking about how sound has this power to evoke. But a parrot's this creature that is, that is in fact a playback machine, a creature that more deeply maps its whole world through sound. And I think I might, I don't know if there's time. Well, I'll go ahead and play um, track, track three, the next track, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> yes. I suspect in your life, Ajax, there have been absences. Times when there's only burden. And aching knees. And that's the room we sit in all alone. But that's a listening room. It's a good room to listen from. Don't you think? 
good space to listen in. Yeah. It's a nice whistle. Bells, you come in here. And Ernst, you could fade that down. I know we've covered this, but just in case, just, it's a real parrot. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just so you all know. Yeah. And in fact, I'll, I'll play another quick track now, which we might as well go ahead with, sure, to show you what an extraordinary creature this real parrot is. We can go. This is a parrot. Uh, sorry, before you do play, it might be worth setting up. I said there are creatures who, who map their world through sound, and I mean the, the kind of complexity of that is mind-boggling, and I suppose I wanted that to be a metaphor throughout the piece of a way we could live our life through sound or a way sound can model consciousness. And in this extract, you'll hear the parrot doing, imitating a walk. The parrot did many things in this program that were quite amazing, but this is one where the parrot walks, and you can actually hear, I think, the sound of the, the heel hitting the floor and the toe and the sound of fabric rustling on, against the shoe, and it is a real parrot. Hey, hey, do you walk? Come on, let's hear the walk. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> it's short. I only did it for a second. That's great. So, so there it is, this metaphor. Um, I, Sharon and I were talking earlier about the way, though, that metaphor kind of needs to do double time or triple time in a story. I think, you know, you mentioned it just then, talking about an isolated metaphor is just a beautiful thing. It has to be really woven into the work. And I think this is an example of that because I feel that on a few levels, that even if people didn't make that connection with the parrot as the things that I just said it is, they hopefully would find that it's informing the tone of the piece and, yeah, there would be a kind of, you know, an aura about listening and sound created. And even if not, then the parrot's also working in a couple of other ways. One, it was giving me someone to address because in this piece I'm sitting alone in a room. I'm very far from Belgium. I'm talking about my kind of the bridge that sound can build between the past and other places, the way sound can dissolve time and space. But I need for that to create a sense that I'm very alone in my room. So the parrot A gives me somebody to talk to as opposed to just talking to the audience. And B, I suppose, he heightens my sense of aloneness. So I think that that's a kind of thing about metaphor that it needs to be somehow working in your story as opposed to just sitting out there on its own. Now, can I ask you, mm-hmm. so you, you um, when I listened to your pieces uh, uh, the first time, I sort of felt like you um, are more enthralled with metaphor even for its own sake. Yeah, well, you know, I'd never actually thought about metaphor before coming here, but, yeah, I guess since thinking about it... Um, you could say that. That sounds rather sterile, but I, I, guess, I guess I think, yeah, I'd be as happy to have a story serve my metaphor as I would right. to have my metaphor serve the story. But so what's the danger there? Well, I don't think there is a danger there. Really? What do you think I, the danger I, I, is? I can think of one. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I mean, I think of some of the new radio pieces that I hear in which metaphor is not necessarily in service of a story. And then there's, the, there's a whole notion of self-indulgence. 
Well, I guess I don't think that's a danger because, well, okay, it's a danger. It's a danger. But I think that forest that I'm trying to talk about going to, I think what that's about is going deep enough with your material that you actually find universals. Mm -hmm. So I know nobody wants to just hear a story about me. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that's what I'm talking about in in forming a strong relationship with your materials. I think that by doing that, you find things that are resonant with other people's subjectivities. But you then you find them in sound, for example. Yeah. I mean, it's the sound of the parrot, not just the remarkable things that this parrot does, but it's the actual sound that you helps you go someplace with the listener. Yeah, I think so. I think partly because that's... Seductive, as you were talking about the, the sound of Sharon, mm -hmm. the voices in Sharon's piece, I think that does have an incredible power. So, yeah, it does help. I mean, I, I want to stop short of saying recordings are, in fact, metaphors, because maybe that's a little bit playing fast and loose with what a metaphor is. But in, in a sense, they are. They are invoking other things. They're standing in. They're, like, metonymical, maybe, standing in for. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think sound and metaphor, I guess, are very tied. Yeah. Um, let's see, what do I have next? Oh, yeah. So this one does have words, actually. I've got a, a sound metaphor coming up, but this is a word one. Um, I'll just set this up a bit. I traveled... These are all pieces that I've made just recently this year. And um, earlier this year, I traveled to a remote Aboriginal community. <clears throat> Excuse me. In, <clears throat> in the Australian outback. And... <clears throat> This is a, a community of indigenous people for whom contact with the, the people who, you know, Captain Cook came and claimed the place uh, for the British Empire a couple of hundred years ago. But it's taken a very long time for that to work right into the centre of Australia. So the people in this community, really it was only in the kind of 30s and 40s that, that British civilization started to kind of make serious impact, or in fact to make impact. And it's a long story, but this mission was actually formed as a kind of buffer to that happening. But so there are many lines of continuity still in this community um, with the way these people have been living for, some estimate, 70,000, 80,000 years. Um, on the other hand, there have been terrible cultural impacts, and there's a lot of evidence of that in things like petrol sniffing and breakdown of respect for elders and so on. So I'll... That I went there because uh, while, while the people there have a very strong connection and uh, their indigenous spirituality is very alive, at the same time they have adopted a Christian spirituality and they managed to hold those two together in a way that's just mind-blowing, but we don't have time to talk about that here. But I went there specifically because they have a choir, a choir that was formed in the 40s but hasn't been active since then. These are elderly people now in this choir. But they, they went to the Adelaide Festival, which is a kind of a big deal arts festival in Australia, and performed as a choir, these elderly people, for the first time. Um, in fact, they had tried to go in the 60s, but they hadn't been allowed to go, um, or they weren't invited to the choir. There was simply no interest in an Indigenous choir. So it was kind of a big deal event, and I travelled with them 
back and forth to Adelaide and to the community. Um, but one thing I noticed uh, while I was there and talking to people and, and this other story was developing is that there was one hymn in particular, O Sacred Head, So wound, Sore Wounded, that was mentioned to me over and over. The original missionary and some archival tape mentioned it. The 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 final missionary, because the missionaries have pulled out now, mentioned it. Many choir members would mention this song. And I kept wondering, why was it this particular song? So I... And here it is. In Pichinjara. Oh, sacred head, sore wounded, with grief and shame weighed down. O kingly head, surrounded with thorns, thine holy crown. How pale art thou with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn? How does that visage languish which once was bright as morn? O Lord of life and glory, what bliss till now was thine? I read the wondrous story. I joy to call thee mine. Thy grief and bitter passion were all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. I, um, as I listened to the lyrics of that hymn, I, it seemed to me uh, not only this great curiosity about what was everybody thinking about, why was that song so resonant for people? It seemed to me that it could describe the situation exactly of the indigenous people. And for me as a program maker, it was interesting that it was written from the point of view of the transgressor. And in fact, there's a... There's a history in our country where the government refuses to apologise uh, to Indigenous people for what's happened, and so uh, it was a nice little extra that there was. There's actually a sort of an apology there, but um, I think it could have been a very, very heavy-handed metaphor if it had only been read in English. But uh, the fact that the Pitjantjara was there as well, the, the Indigenous language, um, to me, sets up this this space between two things which becomes very interesting and I often think that that's where the real, you know, while metaphor is this beautiful kind of crystalline object that reality can get refracted through and you can see the many meanings, what's also very interesting is the space between the literal and the abstract, the, the metaphor and the thing. Um, it's in there that the mind can wander and play and so I, I felt that metaphor could work because it, it had both. It was coming from two perspectives and I think my time's up. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have time for questions, but we'll see. We'll move on with Sandy. Um, I've enjoyed this this whole discussion that we started uh, a couple weeks ago, but then also last night, this whole notion of 
what's in the service of the story, and as Newbar mentioned earlier, the, the relationship that, that you have, that you bring to, to the place uh, that you take pictures or that you're recording in, and how that informs some part of, of uh, what you convey, and, and that it's, that it's an, an inherently, while you're trying to be fair, and it, whether if it's journalistic, you're trying to be as, as accurate as possible, it also can't be entirely removed from one's own experience. And I, my sort of favorite bit on, the, on the, the opposite of that, the old notion of, of, of pure objectivity in journalism, comes from a, a film uh, that some of you may remember called The Marriage of Maria Braun, uh, which came out in maybe 79 or 80 as a fast finder film. And there's a scene where this, uh, this guy has been shot on the steps of a church and he's bleeding to death. And this woman is standing next to him screaming. And this uh, press man comes up with the, you know, the old fedora and the, and the uh, little press card coming out of his hat. And she looks up at him, she's screaming, she goes, isn't this terrible? And he goes, I'm a journalist, I don't have an opinion. And and that's that's kind of the, that's the old model. And what I want to talk about a little bit is is to sort of reinforce what what my colleagues here are saying is that you do uh, you do bring your own experience to it. And then the question is, uh, are some of the metaphors coming through, maybe not intentionally, or are there times where you actually consciously craft them and say, you know, I want you to infer this. Uh, and and when you do do that, it can that sometimes be heavy handed, and you can be the judge of that. Um, so uh, I'm going to try to just go through a couple, and again, these are, these are you know, fairly meaningless categories, but I'm going to call this next one called the, you could call it the crafted metaphor, or in a, in a way that you'll understand the accidental metaphor. I was in Gaza, my assignment was to do a series of pieces on water for Living on Earth and NPR in, in 1997, and it was a real challenge to figure out how do you bring to life something about water and public health and and water quality and refugee camps and how do you make it you know how, how do you sort of make it stand out and as i was doing this i noticed that i had mistakenly recorded something which i can just stare at I had been rolling when I didn't know it in the car that was driving to a refugee camp. Should we just, I should just go ahead. Oh, here we go. No, that's not it. That's it. Um, so, so the, the, I kept, I kept coming back to this. I kept, I, I didn't realize, I mean, I was recording by mistake. I was just in the car with this guy and we almost got killed. Um, and, and, uh, the, the person who was going, watch, 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 uh, that would be me. Uh, and, you know, my right, my kidney here, I mean, it was so close. And the guy comes, oh, my darling, I'm so sorry, I almost hit you. And he pulls the emergency brake and I'm going to play that in just a sec. But, but that's, as I kept, I kept saying, well, you know, too bad I can't use it. It's great tape. I can't use it. It has nothing to do with the story. Uh, and then I, I had to listen to it again. Watch, 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 watch. Jeez, you know, yeah, too bad. It doesn't have anything to do with the story. But then, then I thought, well, you know, what am I, what am I trying to say with the story? And this is sort of this, this balance between, you know, crafting a story around, or crafting the beginning of a story around a metaphor, and then, tr- and then trying to insist, uh, and you can see if you agree, that it's in the service of the story. So let's play that uh, excerpt, which is number nine. 
Gazans have less available water now than they did in 1947, and what water they do have is rapidly deteriorating, further drying out an already brittle tinderbox. Today, as our series Troubled Water continues, Living on Earth's Sandy Tolan brings us this journal from Gaza, a place where diminished and contaminated water supplies may fuel a public health crisis. We, we have, you know, it's, it's one of the major features, in fact, of the, of the Gaza Strip that, that you find they don't kick off. It was early in my journey to the Gaza Strip, and what happened in an instant one hot afternoon, I took as a kind of omen. I was riding with Dr. Yusuf Abu Sophia, soft-spoken environmental scientist, water expert, and representative of the Palestinian Legislative Council. Many problems are making together. We were on our way to a refugee camp in the middle of Gaza, a doctor's black Audi dodged potholes, passing old men in donkey carts, women carrying fodder by the roadside, young men sitting on stoops with nothing to do. The doctor was explaining something about contaminated water in the camps, his specialty, and his mind was not fully on the road. Everyone was safe, but if the man in the Toyota hadn't seen the collision coming, it would have been a disaster. He was driving so fast, I didn't see him, you know. Yeah, no, sorry for that. Fifteen minutes later, we arrive at the Braves Refuge. Okay, you can bring it down. And then it goes, then it's it's sort of like the, the class, you can, go ahead and say that. Thank you. Um, it's, then it's sort of what you might expect ordinarily to have started the piece. Moazin call, we're here in the refugee camp, here's a story about contaminated water. But hopefully that was arresting enough to get people's attention. And actually, I mean, it's up to you to, to see how you, how it works, but the, suddenly this piece of tape, I mean, sometimes you have tape that you think has nothing to do with anything, and, and all of a sudden, there it is. And, and this was very much a deliberately crafted metaphor, and there it is. Now, I want to go to a couple other quick ones and just sort of go through them quickly. Um, when I was... Uh, uh, I worked uh, on a series called Vanishing Homelands with several other journalists, and uh, uh, it was a series for NPR uh, quite a while ago. Um, and there was something Nubar referred to in a couple of his earlier images, a guy lighting a cigarette. He wasn't bowing down. it wasn't conscious. And let's just hear that first sound from the first... But Ecuador's recent... No, 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 sorry. Go, go to number one on the... Uh, just the 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 sound the number one on the sound wall. If it's it, yeah. now this is a guy calling across the water. He, he's, he's calling for a canoe in Ecuador. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, so he's calling for a canoe. He's a guy calling for a canoe, um, and. I'm going to set up the context for a minute, in a minute. But this guy, he's a, what was known as a colono or a settler. He's a guy who's, who's, uh, he's just calling for a canoe. My understanding of, of what he was doing was something somewhat different. Uh, we were, we were on our way, uh, to, uh, a village where, that had been devastated by, 
uh, oil production in the Amazon in the 1970s, and we were trying to understand whether a new development would bring to other parts, especially indigenous parts of Ecuador, what had happened in this part. And so let's play a little bit of that. But Ecuador's recent past is filled with stories of the nightmare of unchecked oil development, of broken pipelines spilling millions of gallons of crude into the rainforest, of toxic wastes pumped directly into streams. So we decide to head north to see for ourselves what oil development has already done to Ecuador. On the next big river to the north, a man calls for a canoe to take him across the river to Kofan Indian land. Here, only a generation ago, Texaco first moved into untouched Amazon forest to begin extracting the oil. The waters are pale gray, almost invisible in the last light of day. A long dugout boat slaps across the Rio Awarico, the river of rich water bringing us from the oil boom town of Dureno to the Kofan village of the same name. Okay, you can say that, thank you. Um, so you can see it's, it's in this, I hope, anyway, it's in the service of the story. It's what I would call more of an organic metaphor. It's like it was so beautiful listening to this guy. He's not, uh, I mean, it's not sort of inherently part of the story in the sense that uh, he's not feeling this loss or loneliness or the loss of oil. It's used as a metaphor for that consciously, but it's also something that it, it, it shouts out, it calls out to be used in the piece because it's right there recorded in the play. So I would say that's somewhere kind of in between. Yeah, but, that, but you're using that sound as your experience of exactly. what's happening to them. Right, right. And that's where, that's where it reflects back to some of your images. Right. I mean, it, it, there is something personal. I, I'm seeing this loss... Um, which, which is really a part of a large part of what the whole piece is about, of what's happened to this community, and it's. But it's also my, it's my interpretation. Right. So it's it's both. Um, okay, a couple qu other quick ones. Uh, Sharon and I had a wonderful collaboration a few years ago with a Palestinian violist uh, about a piece uh, about a guy named Ramzi Hussein, and we were looking for a way to reflect uh, the tension. Uh, of this boy who later became a violist uh, and is now studying still in France, uh, Ramsey. Um, and he picked up the viola about 10 years after he had picked up the stone at age 8 uh, during the beginning of the Intifada. Um, and by the way, uh, before every radio producer and reporter dies and goes to heaven, they should have a chance to work with Sharon Ball. She uh, really is totally... <laughs> she really gets engaged in the piece, and we, we worked on this together. And I just want to pay... This is trying to, trying to use music as a metaphor for the tension in the refugee camps. It was like a game. Would hurl stones and run away. After five minutes, would come back to the same spot and hurl stones again. I was always on the front lines with my friends, standing in front of the younger kids to protect them. Sometimes, when these younger kids threw stones, the stones didn't reach the soldiers. They'd land on our heads. Every time a stone would hit me, I would think that that was it. It was a bullet. 
I shaved my head, he would see all the bumps. I don't remember a day without throwing stones. It was every day. In the morning, I would go to the street and throw stones on my way to school. And the army vehicles would be outside the camp. Once school was over, the army would come in and spread throughout the camp. You can see the houses are clustered together and there are many narrow alleys. Like amazing. I used to leave the door to our house open so when the soldier chased me, I could run inside immediately. We'd run up to the roof and start hopping from one roof to the other until we got to my uncle's house. Once I was running away from the soldiers, I wanted to take Kilef to home. I saw two soldiers coming from that alley. I looked to my right. There were two soldiers coming out that way. So I went straight and then they shot at me. And one of the bullets went between my legs. I wish I could collect all of the stones I threw and frame them or put them on the wall or put them in my own museum because I was only a child and all I had was a stone. Ramzi Hussein is in France now studying the viola. He's been there for several years. Um, Quickly, just want to go into the last couple pieces of tape and set it up because it's going to segue into some of Nubar's images. Uh, the, another piece from Vanishing Homelands uh, dealt with uh, the, a missionary group uh, and the last chief in a certain part of the Amazon in Bolivia, a guy named Ataiba. We went out on a hunt with him. Um, Nubar and I later collaborated on a New York Times magazine piece, but this started life as a, as a radio documentary for the Vanishing Homeland series. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you what the metaphor is, but um, it's, uh, well, we'll talk about it later. Uh, this, this is uh, going out on the hunt, and then it's going to go right into the last p- a part of the piece, uh, which we can talk about afterwards a little bit, um, and then you'll see some of uh, Nubar's images. So, so you're going to do 12, 13, 14 in a row? Yeah. Okay. Start right. with 12. And we're going to take, take the lights down on this. Suddenly, at the base of a large tree, they find the den of the hochi, a small spotted pig. Oscar crouches toward the back entrance and begins to stuff leaves into the hole with his bow. Ataiba creeps toward the den and lies atop the front entrance. His hands are poised in front of the hole, ready to pounce as the animal is forced out from the back. As the hochi rushes out of the hole, Ataiba's hands clamp down around its neck. The animal struggles for breath, but Ataiba doesn't let go. Later that night, Bob Garland stands at the front of the one-room mission school. He speaks of Papaguatsu, God the Great Father. Light from a full moon pours in through the screened window behind him, making his long white sideburns look silver. Three dozen Yuki look up in silence. In the back of the room, 
Ataiba, his belly full of hochi meat, watches Bob, transfixed. Then Bob sits down and turns on a slide machine and tape player powered by a car battery. His own voice, the words carefully translated by Mary into the Yuki language, comes out of the box on the table and colored images suddenly appear on a white sheet hung on the chalkboard. On the screen appear Roman soldiers with red beards and golden helmets. Bob tells a story 2,000 years old of the exodus of the Jews, of temples and prophets in Babylonia. Ataiba stares at the ancient warriors. Our people have started from zero. We've had to be the doctor, the lawyer, the Indian chief, the policeman, you know, and the preacher. And I mean, so we've, we've had to enter into almost every aspect of their lives. Good night. We've had to get involved, teach them how to do sewing. And of course, after 20, almost 26 years of all that kind of help, how could we not feel like we're kind of their daddy and mommy? We'll go into the next one. In his hut, a taiba rocks back and forth in a hammock, gazing at a bed of coals on the dirt floor. He says he had a dream about his brother the other night. He came out of the woods and approached the mission camp. Ataiba called to him, but his brother fled back into the forest to the old way of life. When the winds came strong, we used to sing like this to keep the spirits away. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to see the dead. I don't think about the spirits anymore. I am only thinking about the Word of God. When I hear the wind now, I think that God has made the wind. It is only wind, nothing more. Ataiba leans forward, looking around nervously. Then he smiles. His green eyes shine and fix on a point beyond the camp, somewhere out in the forest. He says, it's hard to forget all the things we knew before. I don't want to sing against those spirits. Yes, sometimes I still do. At times, I do cry out against the winds. Oh, <laughs> 